Um, hey, how many of you, um, real quick, how, how many of you uh, like getting report cards? Anybody like to get report cards? Okay, we got one or two teacher's pets in here. Okay. Um, how many of you absolutely hate getting report cards? Yeah, my people, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, how many teachers, do we, do we have teachers in the, in the house? How, how many of you teachers love giving report cards? They just, you just love it. Okay, okay, good. There's no one cruel in here. All right, I like it. Okay. So as painful as they can be, report cards have, ha, have a great purpose. Uh, what, what report cards do is they help us to understand, identify where we are and what progress we've made and what progress we need to make. They, they tell us if we're stuck or if we're doing okay. And, and, and so report cards, they have a place, no matter whether we like them or not. And I, I tend to not really be in favor of it, but, but I do understand the need that we need to check where we are. And so over the last six weeks, we have been looking at the report cards for churches, okay, to the, the seven churches that are in Asia, modern-day Turkey. And, and we've been looking at the report card that Jesus is giving to them in the form of these letters that he is giving to the churches. And, and so today we wrap up this series as we're looking at the seven different churches and the letters that God wrote to him. And these, these aren't, they're not just report cards. I, I really look at them as, as love letters because it's Jesus writing to his bride and there's some amazing things that he's saying. And sometimes it's a loving encouragement. And sometimes it's a loving correction that Jesus is to give to the church. And my prayer is that as we've been looking at these, that not only are we seeing what Jesus is saying to these seven churches, but we see what Jesus is saying to Newberry Park First Christian Church. And we see what Jesus would say to us individually as part of his body, as part of his church and that is so huge for us. And we've been, we've been hearing all these words of Jesus. And I hope that as we listen, we hear the hope. But we also hear the encouragement that Jesus has in the exhortation to become truly the people and the church that he wants us to be. Uh, first, we looked at the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus was a church that was all head and no heart. Remember, they had sound doctrine, but they had lost their first Love, right. And we ask this question, have we lost our affection? Not, not, not have we lost our knowledge about Jesus or have we lost, you know, we, we like what Jesus will do, but have we lost this passionate love and affection for the one who gave it all for us? Then we looked at the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was the, the faithful church, and we asked, how has God been faithful to you? How has, how has Jesus been faithful to you? Obviously, he, he gave himself on the cross to, to cleanse us of our sinfulness and to make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father and have eternal life. How has Jesus been faithful to us? And then the question is, well, how are we living faithfully for him? We looked at the church at Pergamos, which is the church of compromise. And we asked this question, where, where are we tempted to, to compromise to fit into our culture? And, and what are the things of our culture that are trying to drag us in? We looked at Thyatira, the tolerant church, where we discovered that tolerance is not a virtue. And, and it's not okay to just overlook or, or to act as if things didn't happen. But we need to speak the truth, but always do that 
in love. Then we looked at Sardis, which was the dead church, and we, we really want to constantly take a pulse of, of where we are as a church and asking ourselves, are we alive with the things that alive and um, that Christ wants us to be alive for? Are we passionate about his things? Last week, we looked at the letter to Philadelphia, and, and we, they were the persevering church, and, and in the midst of all kinds of even natural disasters and persecution, this is a church that held on to faith and continued on and lasted longer than, than any of the other churches because they held on tightly to the message of Jesus Christ. And then today, as we wrap things up, we're, we're going to see our final and really the most infamous church, I think, in the law, and it's the church at Laodicea. It's a church that many of you have heard about. It, I think it's probably the, the church that gets preached about the most because people are always pulling uh, this passage into different things. And, and so we're going to dive into this and see what God has for us this morning. And it says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Remember, every time Jesus kind of reintroduces himself to the church, he says, according to the, the, the kind of where you are, this is who I am. And Jesus says, I am the amen. Can everybody say amen? Amen is a unique word. Amen usually comes at the end of stuff. It, you know, people will say a prayer, and then at the end of the prayer you say Amen, right? I mean, we sing and things are happening and everyone likes what we did, you know, or, or likes something that somebody says and they say, amen, right? We don't usually start off a prayer with amen. You know, try that at home. Just start off, you know, amen. Everyone will just start eating, right? <laughs> you know, try that for Thanksgiving. We wish my dad would have done that for Thanksgiving all the time, right? But, but this word amen is because he starts off, he, he says, I'm the amen. And the word am, it's a transliteration word. It, it literally means um, let it be, let it be. So when somebody says something that you say like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Let it be so, right? Let it be. Then we say amen. If the preacher is preaching and some churches are better at this than others, right, Kat? Um, and the pastor says something okay and then the people say amen, right? And it says let that be so, right? Let it be. Think about it in context of the rest of this verse. He says, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, Amen, let it be. What was the first words of all creation? No, think about it for a second. What was the first words of all creation? And God said, let there be. Let it be. Let it be light. Let there be land. Let there be animals. Let there be. He's saying at the beginning of it all, before anything else, he was there to say, let it be, okay? This was not something that John Lennon concocted, okay? These are the words of the Almighty, the creator of the universe, the creator of all of life, and the first words we hear in creation are let it be, and, and Jesus comes on and he says, I am the let it be. I am the one who let it be. In fact, in John chapter one, verses two and three, he says, this is speaking about Jesus, and this is so fitting as we come into the Christmas season, it says, he, is, he was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. It could be that the reason that Jesus introduces himself this way is because he wants to get over the, the get across to them the reality that he is God. That he is God. Because it could be that the Laodicean church had bought into the Colossian heresy. Uh, the book of Colossians, if you, if you take a look at Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it to them because there was some heresy in their midst. And the heresy was this, that the Colossians, they believed in an early form of Arianism, which is basically the idea that, that Jesus is not fully divine. He wasn't fully God. They say, you know, he's like close to it because like, you know, he's the son of God, but he's not really fully God, right? And, and that, was their, that was their heresy. The, the, the truth was they said, hey, look, we, we believe in Jesus, but we just don't know that he's fully God, right? And so the Laodiceans could have really bought into this because we find in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, that Paul says, after this letter, the letter to the Colossians, he says, after it has been read to you, see to it that it's also read to the church at of the Laodiceans. And he says, so, and, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea, right? So he's saying, hey, you guys need to exchange the letters. So I'm thinking they've got a lot of similarities here, okay? Now, in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, it says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let it be. Okay, it was, and he, he said, let it be, and all of these things were, and he is the thing, he is the one that holds everything together, and folks, what you believe about Jesus is absolutely crucial. There's a lot of other things that you can think about, believe about, and everything else, but when it comes to Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is absolutely crucial. We believe that Jesus is fully God, part of the Trinity, that he was the only begotten of God, which means he is the same in kind and essence as God. He is God. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. See, there's a lot of other things that people believe about who Jesus is. Other faiths believe lots of different stuff. Islam believes that Jesus was a human prophet, not divine and certainly not God. Judaism says that Jesus was a man. He was a, good, he was a prophet who claimed to be the Messiah, but he was not. Hinduism believes that Jesus is some manifestation of some godlike being, but there's lots of those. Buddhism says that Jesus was an enlightened human. He's a good teacher, but he's not God. Mormonism believes that Jesus is one of the sons of God, along with Lucifer and others. Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus is an archangel. All these different faiths believe all kinds of other things about Jesus, but Christianity is the only one that believes about Jesus what Jesus claims about himself. And in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one, everybody say no one. No. no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one path, Jesus says, and it's through him. And we have a world that would like to think that there's all kinds of paths that you can take. I hear it all the time. People say, oh, all these paths lead to the same direction. And I always say, all other paths lead to the same direction. And I'm not sure you want to go there. 
But there's only one path to the Father. There's only one path to eternal life with him forever in heaven. And that is through Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And some people might say, well, that's kind of narrow-minded. And I would say, amen. It is. I didn't make it up. None of this is my choice. All it is is truth. It is what God says is what Jesus says about himself. And, and, And what we think and what we believe about Jesus is of utmost importance. I mean, C.S. Lewis said this, and we've said this before here, that Jesus cannot just be a nice man or a good teacher. He hasn't left those options open to us. He has said he is God, that he is one with the Father, that he is the Son of God, he is the Redeemer of mankind, he's the only way. And so he, he can't just be a good teacher, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is exactly who he said he is, the Son of God. And if he is who he said he is, then we had better take notice of that because it is of utmost importance. More than anything else, what you believe about Jesus determines your relationship with God and where you will spend eternity. And the question this morning is this, is have you taken care of that? Do you have a relationship with the Almighty One, with the One who is the author and creator of the universe and creator of life? Well, most other churches... um, receive some sort of encouragement. The church at Laodicea, however, they, they have words of only rebuke. And we're gonna dive into that this morning because it's what have they done, where do they have Jesus, right? So it starts off in verse 15. It said, Jesus says this, I know your deeds. And when Jesus says, I know your deeds, he's not just saying, hey, I know what you're doing, I know what you're up to. He says, I know you. I know everything there is to know about you. I know you inside and out. So what is it that we know about the church in Laodicea? I'm going to give you this morning four different um, characteristics of the church at Laodicea that I think really fit um, what this passage of Scripture uh, teaches us. The first is this. Um, uh, Laodicea had had a serious water supply issue. And this is the part that probably a lot of you have heard before. Um, It was located in the Lycus Valley. um, They had one very small, very seasonal, the Lycus River. It often dried up. Um, There was all kinds of problems, and it was oftentimes polluted with different kinds of minerals. So it it wasn't good for drinking. Um, But there were two other towns that were close by that had water supplies. One was Heropolis. It was six miles to the north, and Colossae was 10 miles to the east. Heropolis was famous for its hot, mineral water. Uh, for, it had great rejuvenating and um, medicinal purposes. We actually got to go there. I think we got a picture of me and Brenda standing in the, in the water. And you see all the white stuff over the edges? This place, you can see it from miles. And at first you think it's snow on the side of the hill. Just stop right there, Rick. Um, and it, um, but it's not. It's all calcium carbonate that's coming out of all of this. And it, this, it's super rich in minerals. People would come from all over the world to bathe in this water, to be in this hot mineral water, because it had all kinds of healing properties, all kind, you know, it would relax you, everything else. Great, great stuff. Um, and so what they did, the Romans built aqueducts. This is one of the original aqueducts. And this water would come out of the hills, run down these aqueducts. And I think there's another picture of one that they used. So you can see the little aqueduct system, right? They would make this aqueduct that would run, take the hot water all the way from Heropolis, six miles away down to Laodicea. Now, on the other side of the valley, 
Okay? On the other side of the valley was Colossae. And, and you can see the mountain range that's, nope, go back to the other one. Um, the, the mountain range, and, and this is the only mountain range in Turkey that pretty much year-round has some snow on the top of it. So they have nice, cold, refreshing water, okay? While Heropolis had hot water, hot mineral water that was for healing, Colossae had this cold, fresh mountain spring water, you know, coming from the snow that was refreshing and, and, and was good to drink. The problem was, is how were they going to get it 10 miles to Laodicea, right? So the Romans were ingenious. So one of the things, man, these guys were amazing in their time. They were the first people that actually used piping, and they made these terracotta pipes. You can go to the next uh, slide here. So we went to Colossae, and one more. You can see the mountain, I think, in this one. There's the mountain off in the distance. Um, and then I think one more. These are the clay pipes. And these things are, you know, thousands of years old, and they're still in, in pretty decent shape. And they ran these pipes all the way from the mountain springs all the way down. But the problem was is once they got down to the bottom, they had it in these normal open-air aqueducts. And along the, the thing, it, it, would get, it would get polluted. Okay, And so um, think about it. You've got um, Heropolis. They've got hot water coming. They've got Colossae. They've got the, the cold water coming, right? And, and so this is where, uh, it, it, have this in mind when you hear what Jesus says to the church next. He says, you are neither, this is the part we've always heard, all heard before, you are, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Right? How many of you have heard that before? Right? Yeah. And notice what it said. Notice what it says here. He said, in most sermons that I've heard about this, they've been exhorting us, whatever you do, don't be cold, don't be cold, don't be the frozen chosen, right? It's like, be hot, be on fire for Jesus, right? I mean, you gotta be hot, baby, right? That's, that's, that's how most of us have heard this, right? Um, but notice what it says here. If you told a first century Christian, you gotta be on fire for Jesus, do you know what they would think about? All the Christians that have been burned at the stake, they, they wouldn't have thought about, ooh, be passionate. They already were. They had to be. None of, nobody thought being on fire for Jesus meant I'm all excited. Being on fire for Jesus was you gave your life and you were burned because you were a Christian, literally. But notice that Jesus says this. He says, I wish you were either. I wish you were either. So you can be hot and you can be cold. Now, what does he mean by that? Because we've always kind of said, well, I can't be a cold Christian, right? It's, it, it, again, it's just the way we understand some of these words. Jesus says, I'd rather have you either. You see, by the time that the water from Heropolis got all the way six miles in the open air aqueducts to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, right? And by the time the cold water from Colossae traveled 10 miles in pipes and then in open-air aqueducts, by the time it traveled all that way, when it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm, okay? So forget all those other sermons that have ever told you, you know, the hot came and the cold came and they mixed together and it was lukewarm. It was all lukewarm by the time it got to Laodicea. That's why Laodicea is just lukewarm. No matter what water you got in Laodicea, it was going to be lukewarm, right? And what I think he's saying here is this. As both, source, as both of those water supplies moved further from the source, the less useful they became. 
Okay? The further away from the source they got, the more they took on the characteristics of everything around them. You weren't going to drink the water from Heropolis anyways. They told us, make sure you don't drink that stuff or you are going to be in the bathroom a very long time. Okay? And the water that came from Colossae would travel through the aqueducts. And the problem was is the fields that it went through were all pasture lands. You know what happens in pasture lands. The water was pretty polluted. Don't drink that either, right? But by the time it got there, it was already lukewarm. The problem was is it had gotten away from its source. And because it had gotten away from its source, it was now lukewarm and polluted. Okay? Now think about that. Maybe the question is this morning, you see, their water could no longer heal or refresh. The question is this, has there grown a distance between Jesus as your source and where you are today? And is that distance what's making you lukewarm? Is the distance that, that, that you have, you know, because some of you have been believers for a long time, and maybe it's the fact that with all those years, you've just thought, I'm all good. But you've slowly drifted in distance away from the source. You come on Sunday morning, you sing, and, and you're, you're, you're all excited and praising the Lord in songs. And I love this stuff. It's amazing, and it, it does make me excited to, to see how awesome our God is, and he deserves our praise. But we sing these songs, and then we're convicted by the word. But as the week goes on, do you find yourself, as it gets to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that all of a sudden you've drifted, you, you're distant from God, you don't have the same passion and energy that we had when we were here on Sunday morning? Have you just, has the distance away from the source caused you to live a lukewarm life in the rest of the world? where we're no longer living in the fresh excitement of his presence, but relying on last Sunday's experience and last month's devotion and last year's encounter we had with God. And Jesus is saying, get back to the source. Get back to the source, but because you're lukewarm, and the word literally means I'm going to vomit you, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, but, but there's good news. It's in the word about the little words make a lot of difference, right? He, ha he, hasn't, he hasn't vomited you out yet. Okay? He might be a little, you know, but he's... Okay? He might be about to, but there's hope, right? There's hope. And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, hey, you guys are lukewarm. I mean, nobody goes over to the coffee shop, right? When I, when I go over to, like, Ragamuffin, right, and I go in, I, I, they always ask me, do you want it, do you, would you like that hot or do you want it iced, right? Nobody's ever yet asked me, hey, can, would, would you like some lukewarm? Would you, would you like it like that? No, right? I usually get mine hot. I do ice only when it's really hot outside, but right? And so nobody ever does that, you know? And if it sits on my desk too long and I'm like, ugh, you know, it just, it's just not right. And, and so Jesus, you know what? The further I get away from the source and the longer the time and the distance, there's this possibility that it gets lukewarm. Folks, go back to the source. And the source is Jesus, Amen. All right, you're still with me, good. So, another characteristic of Laodicea. They were incredibly wealthy. These guys were filthy rich, okay? And, and, and what happened was in 26 AD, 
They wanted to be what was called a neocore. It was a church that celebrated Rome, and they were allowed to build a special Roman temple in their city. And they would actually have competitions, like we have competitions to build stadiums and stuff for the Olympics, right? They would put in so, so they could build this special temple in honor of Rome. And when they were doing that um, uh, in 26 AD, Laodicea was told no. They were turned away, they were rejected by Rome, um, and Smyrna, their neighbor, won the award, right? Um, and Laodicea was told, no, you can't build the temple for Rome, and the reason is, is you have insufficient funding. And they got ticked. They were embarrassed and upset, and so what did they do? They said, that will never happen to us again. So they set out to become wealthy. They purposed in their hearts that they were gonna become the wealthiest city in the region, and they succeeded. They were at a major crossroads of, of trade. They started to work on all kinds of different things. Um, they brought in some things that we'll talk about in just a minute, and these, this church became incredibly wealthy, so much so that what happened in 60 AD, so this is only like not even 40 years later, it's like 34 years later, there was a horrible earthquake. Okay, we've been talking a lot about the earthquakes in the streets. There's a horrible earthquake, leveled the whole city, and Rome actually, it was so bad, Rome came in and said, hey, we will help you with, we will help fund the reconstruction of the city, and you know what Laodicea said? Forget you. They said, remember when we wanted something, you know, to be your guy, and you told us we didn't have enough money? Well, guess what? We do now, and we'll take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. Right? So they were like, we're gonna prove to you that we're better than that. We're gonna prove to you that we have the funds that, that it takes. And this, this church had become incredibly proud of its wealth. And the cities, as the city's wealth increased, they built huge stadiums. I think we have a picture of this huge theater. Um, and same, they had these beautiful streets. This is one of the largest amphitheaters in the, in the whole Turkey area. This thing was gigantic. They were reconstructing some of this with these cranes while we were there. This thing was huge. And then they built these, um, as their wealth increased, they built shopping malls. I think we have a picture of Brenda like uh, on the street. This was the shopping mall, right, with all the stores and things, right? Because when you go to places of wealth, they have nice malls, right? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right? So they had all the, and, and not only was the city wealthy, the church, the church followed suit. The church had become so wealthy in, in uh, the year 2010, archaeologists actually discovered the actual church in Laodicea, the building. It is the largest church building um, for that time period by, like, by, by far. It, it is a gigantic structure, and before this time, they, they didn't have any structures. Most of them met in homes. These guys built an enormous building, okay? I think if you go to the next thing, you can see kind of that's the picture of what the, the architects think the building looked like because of the, its design, and you can read all kinds of stuff about it. Um, they had ornate mosaic floors. It was really, they, I mean, it was really an amazing, beautiful place. All marble, mosaics, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, they, were the, they were the first to have an indoor baptistry, right? Because this is Laodicea, man. They got plumbing, right? These guys got pipes and plumbing and everything, and this was the baptistry in the church at Laodicea. These guys had it all, and they were very, very proud of what they had accomplished and what they had built, right? Now, 
With all that in mind, listen to the words of Jesus. It says this. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Do do you hear the self-sufficiency in that? Do you you hear the the self-reliance and the pride in that statement? It's all, hey, we are wealthy. We don't need a thing. Does does that sound a little bit like our culture, our Southern California culture? Hey, we we, we got it. We've got it made, right? But then listen to the words of Jesus. As he continues, he says, well, you might think you're rich and you don't need a thing. He says, says, "Um, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, and what? Yeah, he hits them where it hurts, right? You think you're wealthy, you don't need a thing. He goes, you are wretched, pitiful, and you are poor, right? Now, obviously, he's speaking of of spiritual things. He's saying, hey, you might have all kinds of physical stuff, but man, spiritually speaking, you have gotten away from the source. You have gotten away from me, and spiritually, you are bankrupt. He goes on, he says, not only are you wretched, pitiful, and poor, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind, okay? which goes into the next characteristic of the city of Laodicea. One of the things that they had in Laodicea was they had an enormous medical school. And the thing that they specialized in the most in the medical school at Laodicea was ophthalmology, right? It was really kind of an interesting thing. Um, They uh, One source that I looked at said that there was a doctor, his name was Diosthenes, and Diosthenes wrote a book and had all these diagrams of the human eye, and it was used for the next 1,500 years, okay? They were so advanced in in what they learned about the eye. There was a special uh, ointment that they created here in in Laodicea at their eye school um, because they would take the pumice from a certain volcanic stone and they would crush it into a powder and mix it with an ointment and they would put it on people's eyes and it cures, even to this day, they still have the same stuff um, and it cures um, conjunctivitis, right? Pink eye, right? Before that, nobody knew how to take care of that. You know, it was just wash, wash, wash all the time. These guys actually developed the stuff out of this pumice stone and they, they crushed it up and they would use this eye ointment, right? And so these guys thought that their medical wisdom had it all figured out, right? And so Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, 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 you're not only poor, you're blind. And they're thinking, blind, man, we don't, you, haven't you gone to our eye doctors here? They're the best in the world. And Jesus says, yeah, but spiritually speaking, you have no vision. He says, not only are you poor and blind, you are also naked. You are poor, blind, and naked. Another thing that Laodicea had, one of the ways that they got rich, remember while they were trying to make all this money, is they imported, um, they were the first area, they imported these uh, special black sheep. And there were these black sheep that had this really long wool, and they still have them over there today. And it's some of the most sought-after wool in the world. And it's... Um, and, and so this, they, they would harvest this wool and make these incredible 
very deep black garments. It was the only place really in the world at the time that had this particular fabric, and that was one of the ways that they got rich. And so because of that, these guys had some very expensive clothing, right? They, these guys were the, they, this was the place, um, from one thing I read, this is where the whole idea of not just robes, like they used to wear robes, they were all one piece with a hole at the top, right, and the arms out the side. This was one of the first places that this, the, developed what became the modern day suit, right? With collars and everything, this is, what, this is where that came from. So these guys had really fancy, expensive attire, right? And Jesus says, well, hey, you might think you're rich, but no, you're poor. You might think that you've got all this wisdom and you're, you know, you've got these items, but you're blind. He says, you might think you've got all this fancy clothes, but guess what? You, spiritually speaking, you are naked. You are exposed. And Jesus says, he's telling them that as they have distanced themselves from him, and they have found their identity in the things of the world, that they were looking for wealth, wisdom, and their own ingenuity, and they're looking on those things to give their lives meaning and purpose, and they did not realize, he says, you don't even realize how poor and how blind and how naked you are. He says, you have chased after those things, you've distanced yourself from me, and because of that, he says, you guys are totally morally bankrupt, you are spiritually blind, and you are spiritually naked. And Jesus comes to them, and he says, you're finding your meaning and purpose in all the wrong places. And Jesus is holding out the better version of everything that our heart is longing for. He says, you want wealth? I can give you something else. In fact, he goes on in, in, in verse 18, he says this. He starts, this is Jesus' advice to them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's gold that doesn't have any impurities in it. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Jesus is saying, you think you've got out, you need to get the real deal, Right? You need to get the real stuff from me. Jesus says, you want wealth? I will give you refined gold, true riches in life. He says, you want your clothes to make a statement? He says, I want to cover your shamefulness. He says, our vision, you know, he says, your vision is blurred by your selfishness. And Jesus says, I want to give you a completely new perspective, a clear vision of what life is supposed to be like. And the question this morning for all of us is this, how far have we strayed from the source of Jesus. The question is, will you take him up on his offer this morning? And will you trade in all the things that the world is telling us to chase after to give us meaning and purpose? And will we take up what he has to offer for us and have life that is truly life? See, here's the good news is while there is only rebuke really to this church, there is a glimmer of hope. And it comes in verse 19 where he says this. Jesus says, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, okay? Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent, he says. I mean, do, I, do you see the hope in here? I, I hope that you do. Because while it sounds kind of harsh, Jesus is saying, hey, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't be pointing this stuff out to you. If, if I didn't love you, if I didn't love you in the midst of your sin, I would have just stayed in heaven and I would have allowed you to just go to hell on your own. But he didn't. 
The great news of all of this is that Jesus loves every single one of us so much that he pursues us in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our blindness, in the middle of our shame, in the middle of everything else. And Jesus pursues us and he comes after us and he says, I've got what you really want. But in order to get what your heart really longs for, you're going to have to give up all this stuff that the world has got you holding on to. Jesus saying, my rebuke, my discipline, they are signs not of my wrath, not of my judgment, not of my anger. No, these are signs that I love you. That I love you deeply and I'm willing to get in there and do the hard work with you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, um, I, it talks about God's discipline. He says this, he says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? Okay, remember that, this is encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So when you hear these words of conviction, when you hear these words that say, man, I got work to do, don't take those as, oh my gosh, I'm no good. No, take these as a sure sign that you have a God who loves you and is saying, hey, I'm here to work with you for your good. And he says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises everyone who accepts him as a son. He loves you. Folks, Jesus loves you. And he did not. And he would not sit back and just watch us head off into the distance away from him into a Christless eternity. No, he came and met us where we're at. He died to help us avoid a future without him. And the question is, is will you listen to him? Will you listen to his voice and will you return to him because he loves you? Will you, as he says, will you be earnest and will you repent? The verse goes on in Revelations 3.20. Jesus says this, some more famous words. He says, here I am. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, the church at Laodicea, by every outward appearance, they looked successful. Okay, just like the city. Uh, yet they were spiritually bankrupt, blind, and, and, and how far had they strayed away from their zealous love of Jesus? Their problem was is they, they didn't think they had any problems. Their problem was they thought that they were self-sufficient, that they could handle all of this on their own, that they had lost their ultimate dependence on Christ. They didn't need any help. They had positioned themselves by their own strength to no longer need anything, including Jesus. Now, they wouldn't say that. But that verse really says it all, because where's Jesus? He's on the outside. He's on the outside knocking at the door. And one of the deep questions for every single one of us today is this, is where's Jesus? Have we gotten so distant from him? Have we kept him outside? The good news is this, no matter where you've got Jesus, 
Even if he's on the outside, he is knocking. He is knocking. He has not yet gone away disappointed. He is knocking at the door of every human heart, and he is asking, can I come in? Can I come in? Can I come in? Because all of that stuff, all of those issues in your life, he says, let me in there, and I will take care of it. That spiritual blindness that you've got a problem with, See, here's the issue that most of it, if you go back to that, it says you don't realize how poor, pitiful, and blind you are. If you let him in, he may expose just how crazy things are. But he will help you move back to the source of strength and power and belonging and truthfulness and faithfulness, and peace, and joy, and everything else that your heart longs for. But you will never get there by your own strength. You will never get there just trying hard enough. You need Jesus to do that. And the question today is, will you let him in? Jesus stands at the door and he knocks and he says, he says this at the end of the passage. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Where's that? Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In, in Laodicea, there was, a, there was a throne room. There was a guy who became uh, one of the wealthiest citizens. The guy's name was Zeno. And he became kind of like the governor of the area, the, kind of the mayor of the city. And they were so wealthy, they actually built a throne room. <laughs> and, and if you gave enough to the city, you could go in and sit with Zeno and party with Zeno in his throne room, right? And Jesus is going, you want all that? You want that Zeno stuff? It's like, no, if you let me in, he says, you can sit on a real throne. But you only do that. You only do that by letting Jesus in. So here's some questions for us to think through this morning. What's the temperature of your faith? Not just is, is it hot or cold, but what's the distance that you've gotten away from Jesus? How far have you gotten from the source? How's your temperature? What's the temperature of your faith? The next question is this, it's um, what might you be depending on more than Jesus? Is it your wealth, your health, even your family? What are the things that you're depending more than Jesus on for your own self-worth, your own acceptance, your own strength? Because if it's anything other than Jesus, then you've gotten away from the true source. The next question is, where's your blind spot? That's a hard one, because you're blind to it. The only way you're really ever going to see that is by letting Jesus in. And the question again is, will you let him in today? And what do you feel you need to cover up and hide? Where's the shamefulness in your life? And what are you using to try to cover it up? Because Jesus says, come to me. 
Because I died to cover your sins. I died to take that away. I died to make you truly rich. I died to make you truly see. I died to give you eternal life. And the question this morning keeps coming back. Will you let him in? Will you let him be everything that he intends to be? And this morning, I just thought to myself, man, as we head into communion this morning, if you're here and you have distanced yourself, then maybe you just need to come. Maybe you need to get out from where you're sitting because it might be comfortable there. And maybe you just need to come and you just need to pray. You say, Lord, I've distanced myself from you and I need to get back where we started. Maybe you need to come and say, Lord, I have been depending on all kinds of other stuff to give me worth, to give me value, to give me acceptance. And maybe you need to come this morning and say, Lord, I need, I need you to take this and I need to hold on to you. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, show me where I'm blinded. Lord, show me what my need is. But the question today is, will you let him in? Because every week we celebrate what he's done for us. And as we take communion today, our staff and our elders, they're going to be up front here and they would love to pray for you or maybe you just need to come and pray. Maybe you need to come and repent. Whatever business you need to do with the Father, get it right with Him. Go to the source today, people, and let Jesus do His work. His letter to us is simply this. He loves us and He wants us to let Him in. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your persistence that, God, you are knocking, knocking, knocking at the door. And, Father, there's some here this morning that have a nagging feeling inside that things are just not right. And Father, like the word says, we may not even realize what it is. We we may be blinded to what that is, but God, help us to see that this morning that that nagging feeling is a reality that we we have grown distant from you. And Lord, we need to let you in. So Father, my prayer this morning as we commune with you is that Lord, not only would we take the the little bread that represents your body and the cup that represents your blood, but God, that we, as we take that in, that God, we would let you in and that Father, we would allow you to do the work that only you can do in our lives. And that Father, we would let go of fear and shame, that we would let go of our blindness, that we would let go of everything else that hinders us from realizing that you are the true source. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you love us enough to discipline us. Help us accept that this morning and help us to let you in. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.